2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
2: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Looking at GameStop, Bonnie, I know you wanted an update. It's up 117% today, up 1,600% year-to-date up 7,400% <laughs> as per the Bloomberg Terminal on a trailing 12-month basis. Let's uh, try to put some of that into context. We can do that with John Authors. He's a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. He's seen a thing or two. John, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of the GameStops of the world? And there's a lot more besides GameStop And you take a look at some of these other names like Tootsie Roll and AMC Entertainment and others.
4: Well, I guess my... The, my best take on this, um, which has provoked a lot of reaction, but, but this, is, uh, this is obviously bubblish behavior, not necessarily a bubble for the entire market, but extremely frothy behavior at the margins in the very least, uh, which is concerning. And what's really concerning is that it's not a classic bubble driven by greed. Uh, it seems to me to be driven by anger. Um, people feel that uh, the current situation is unfair and we all know they've got plenty of reasons to uh, to think that. And things like the attack on the shorts, the uh, short squeezing GameStop, are seen as a way, I've had feedback saying this is a way of earning back the money we paid for the tarp bailout 12 <laughs> years ago. The, the, this, this is seen as... Writing a historical wrong, which is something that that's been an interesting done, angle. fueled by righteous anger rather than greed.
3: Yeah, I mean, I find this a phenomenally in- interesting take because you know, there are a lot of takes out there from the people who were short themselves to people like Anthony Scaramucci saying that this is positive for Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot of people just making hay from this phenomenon, but John, I think you've hit on something very interesting, which is you know, are there now different strata of capitalists and are they partaking of the whole populism phenomenon only sort of in a different world? Uh,
4: yes, I, that that's the, the, the kind of similarity to um, what we saw at the Capitol is quite concerning. Um, again, you're talking about social media coordinating angry people into making... An attack on what they see as the establishment, and plainly the capital is the establishment. Whether whether traditionally the short sellers who had been attacking GameStop are unpopular on Wall Street, they're seen as the good guys or the little guys trying to to keep Wall Street honest. But at this point, they wear suits, and that means they're they're among the enemies. Now that there's obviously great differences in methods but the motivations behind this are very similar to the motivations behind the various populist movements we know around the world um the the reasons for anger are very genuine again as you might also say about for example brexit the question is whether this is a sensible way to channel that anger whether this is a sensible response to uh the real uh, uh, unfairness that is out there.
3: John, is there a political element to this? I mean, is this occupy the stock market or is it something more akin to what we saw last week, as you said?
4: I do think there's a political element to this, yes. Um, Whether it is, um, uh, I I mean, it's not solely um, a political element, but in terms of, when you're worried about a bubble, whether you're worried when you're worried about the possibility of excess, um, what matters then is sentiment, how what the psychology is that's driving people. Now, the problem with greed is that people will do a lot for greed naturally, and it needs to be balanced against fear. Uh, in this case, it is righteous anger, and if there is any emotion that will make us throw caution to the winds even more than greed will, I would say it's anger. Um, and it, it's very hard. Since I wrote my column last night, I've had some people suggesting that the Mississippi bubble, the French equivalent of the South Sea bubble, might have had some elements of this, that that, that people were angry with with life in, in France and saw investing in their... Uh, in uh, rather illusory prospects in the new world as a, as a way of getting back at them but that's the best that, that's the only example anybody has come up with of something like this where there is this kind of speculative action and it's driven by anger not greed um so so it's a, whenever we have a lack of precedent that's concerning you don't know what's coming
2: John, if this is indeed a bubble, does this bubble, is there any reason to believe that this bubble doesn't end like other bubbles do and people get hurt and it just kind of pops?
4: No, there's no reason to believe that. There's certainly a reason to believe that that, that this bubble could be far, far bigger than it currently is. And there's, um, we can can go back over the, uh, the, the, there are two sides to the argument that both of them are completely valid as far as they go stop. Stocks are very expensive judged against their own history, but they're not expensive compared to uh, to bond yields. Uh, and then it becomes an argument about whether bond yields stay this low. Um, but in terms of, is there any reason to believe this kind of a bubble wouldn't burst? compared to other bubbles, there's there's no reason to believe that. I I assume that it would, and I assume that the last people in who will be the little guys, just as they are now, will, as in previous bubbles, be the ones who get hurt the most.
3: I mean, is this one area we're seeing actual unity, John? Are these people on the right and on the left with the same argument? There's a great argument out there about how we don't fully recognise that cultural expressions of politics like protest songs for example are just yes. as popular on the right as they are on the left and that just haven't given enough you know uh, attention to both sides yes. of that coin it just seems to be something associated with the left but is that what we're, i mean are we seeing that here
4: uh, yes i think that's a very good point i think that it's it's one of the points we've seen in politics for some years now and again if you want to go back to brexit and and Trump or, or, or to protectionism. The the, the uh, in in Britain it was very much the traditional right, but a lot of people on the traditional left um, wanted Brexit, and it was a uh, a uh, an elite from the centre left to the centre right that wanted to stay with Europe. That there was this uh, unholy alliance. In many ways, if you go back to the financial crisis of twelve years ago, there there was uh, a, a very strange um, alliance in the, in the. The, uh, the people who really shared an analysis of what had gone wrong and who really disliked moral hazard the way the Fed behaved were either libertarians on the right, you think of Ludwig von Mises, or outright socialists on the left, like Hyman Minsky. Uh, and they had very different ideas for how to um, solve the problem, but they actually had almost exactly the same uh, prescription, the same definition of what had gone wrong. Yes. Uh, and, and similarly, if you're a libertarian or an equal- egalitarian socialist, you have equally strong, good reasons to be angry at the moment, and you get this a, a, a strange alliance.
3: John, author's fabulous conversation and the latest Bloomberg Opinion article from John on this particular subject is GameStop is rage against the machine. Anger is an energy. Do have a read of it. It's a a take that we haven't heard enough about, to be honest, out there. Yeah. And uh, just really fascinating. Do stay tuned. We're going to get a COVID-19 White House task force briefing at 11 a.m. We're going to dip into that and see what exactly is going on. This is New York City is to get 17,000 more doses next week.
0: Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading.
3: Another treat for us now. We get to talk Fed with Alan Blinder, Princeton University professor and, of course, former Federal Reserve Vice Chair. He served with Janet Yellen on the Fed's board in Uh, you know, recent decades and is also a co-author of a book with Janet Yellen called The Fabulous Decade, Macroeconomic Lessons from the 1990s. That was published in 2001. Alan, thank you so much for joining. Uh, First, your reaction to Janet Yellen as now Treasury Secretary, the first woman Treasury Secretary of the United States of America.
5: Well, I'm pleased this punch, as you can well uh, (laughs) regard. It is (coughs) well, well understand. It is a landmark to have the first woman uh, sitting in the Secretary of the Treasury's office. She comes very well prepared. Not all secretaries of the Treasury do, you may recall, without naming names. Uh, Some do, some don't. She comes very well prepared, both understanding markets and understanding Washington and understanding the Treasury's business, and especially, obviously, understanding the Federal Reserve. When you're in a crisis situation, such as we've been in for a while, the Treasury and the Fed, regardless of who's sitting in those two chairs, have got to be in close collaboration early and often. And this is just gonna be so easy with Janet Yellen and Jay Powell.
2: So, uh, Professor, how do you expect, or what would you like to see uh, in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy here? Just where we are right now, it seems like we're in a, we can look to the other side of this pandemic, but there's still a long road ahead. What would you like to see?
5: Yeah, I think monetary policy should be sitting right where it is. And that's, of okay. course, what the Federal Reserve thinks. This is no news. And, then, and But I just might say that's in a hyper-expansionary stance. <laughs> uh, yep. So it's not like they're sitting in neutral or something like that. If they got the interest rate to the floor. They're buying uh, – uh, securities may, uh, to uh, increase the size of the balance sheet, and so on. They should stay that way for a while. Uh, it's regretful, and I'm not sure the legal status of some of these, uh, that Secretary Mnuchin saw fit in his closing days to cut, cut them out, the Fed's emergency uh, lending facilities. I'd like to see Janet Yellen put them back, to the extent that she can, some that may need congressional action, which is harder. Whatever can be done by Treasury action, I think, should be done just because you want them there is a backstop.
0: The yeah. argument
5: that Mnuchin made that, well, we're not using these, let's throw them away, is exactly the same as saying, I haven't made a claim on my fire insurance policy for my home, so let me just cancel it.
3: Yeah, for sure. If and when it does come up again, I imagine there'll be a a different type of approach from the Treasury. So curious, Alan, you know, Jerome Powell has been a Fed board member since, you know, 2012. He became the chair of the FOMC in 2018. What happens next with the Fed chair position? Presumably, Chair Powell stays as long as he's, he's you know, welcome to stay, which presumably is the rest of his term. Mm-hmm. And then does President Biden appoint somebody else? Who might it be?
5: Well, I think it's very early to speculate on that. But look, I don't think you should eliminate Jerome Powell. Uh, Prior to Donald Trump, there were many instances of a a new president coming in with a Fed chair appointed by a president of the other party and then um, giving that person another term because they were all he's then. One of them was Janet Yellen. She was the exception. Trump did not do that. But many previous presidents looked at the Fed chair and said, well, he did a very good job. Uh, let's keep him in position. So
3: you'd be fine so, with Jerome Powell having a second term as Fed chair?
5: I would be. Now, of course, it's up to Joe Biden, not to me. All I'm saying is that I wouldn't write him out. Mm. There's definitely a live possibility that he could become, uh, get a second term. Now, if, if that's not the case, an obvious candidate is Lael Bra- Brainerd, who's the Democrat mm-hmm. sitting on the board uh, right now, and there may be other uh, Biden appointments yes. before Powell's term ends to the board, and those will be live uh, candidates. And then there are plenty of people. I don't want to start speculating on names in the financial world uh, who are Democrats who could be attractive to Biden as a replacement for Powell, but. The logic here is going to be question a is for Biden is do I keep Powell or replace him mm. that's question one yep. then if you answer that in the negative, then a whole host of names uh, start should start coming to your desk
2: yes Professor, given what we know about fiscal policy, given what we know about Uh, fiscal stimulus and and monetary policy, what is your economic outlook here? I mean, I think there's concern here uh, that the improvement in the economy, the opening up of the economy, if you will, maybe take a little bit longer than people had initially thought.
5: Yeah, well, it depends on many things of which two are completely obvious. One is the uh, speed or, or lack of speed with which we get this wave of the virus under control. That depends a lot on the vaccination rollout, which, as you know, has been disappointingly slow and which uh, President Biden has promised to accelerate and is taking uh, steps to accelerate. And the other is the passage or non-passage of another COVID relief package. So we did one in December. That was good. It's now to January. It is soon going to be February. In March for example, things start running out, such as the extra unemployment, uh, benefits. I'd be pleased, but surprised if the economy is looking really healthy in March, that is to say no, no longer needing extra emergency support. So I hope the Congress is going to pass a bill. Uh, we don't need it this week, but we do need it. Uh, and the health of the economy in March, April, May, June, et cetera, depends, among other things, on that.
3: Alan, what do you make of the data that actually shows improvement these days? I mean, yesterday we got the confidence data which showed that perhaps yeah. not in the future, but right now people are a little more confident. What's giving them that confidence if many of them have been out of work for nearly a
5: yeah. year? That's great. I'm glad you asked that. I was surprised at that, and I noted that the, the sentiment about the current economy uh, had not improved, had deteriorated a little bit. But people are looking forward, and I think the answer is the light at the end of the tunnel, the vaccine. Um, it's not like this is a secret. Everybody in the country knows that vaccines are here. People are starting to get vaccinated. And there's a lot of talk now, especially now, about having everybody who wants a vaccine vaccinated by summer. That's a big change from the way the world looked three, six months ago
2: so when we think about that, the light at the end of the tunnel professor the uh, the number of folks that are out of work and out of work for a long period of time is is yeah. increasingly troubling, I think to oh, yeah. a lot of folks here How do you think the the labor economy is going to recover you know again at the other side of this
5: well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it depends on those two things yeah. Uh, as we get rid of the scourge of the coronavirus a lot, let, let me back up a step a lot of those jobs you're talking about are in the service industries restaurants right. theaters uh, entertainment venues of all uh, sorts it's not people like me and people like you who are working electronically and those jobs will come back or at least most of them i think will come back as and when the virus fades into uh, insignificance. you know, I, I should emphasize, we have seasonal flu every year. It kills 10, 20, 30,000 people every year, but that's a long way from 400, 500,000. You know, the, the thought we should have is to get the coronavirus down to the level of the flu or something like that. And then the country can go back to normal. So there's that. And then the second thing is the uh, uh, COVID relief package, which has benefits for unemployed. So if you if you don't have your job back, you can continue on uh, on unemployment benefit. It will probably have relief checks, which I hope are better targeted than they've been uh, in the past. And those things will help the labor market.
2: Alan Blinder, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on the economy here. Alan Blinder, he's a professor of economics at Princeton University and former Fed Vice Chairman. We appreciate his thoughts.
3: And now we want to get to our next guest, Brian Whalen, who's Group Managing Director for TCW's Fixed Income Group. Brian, the obvious question, we're below 1% once again on the 10-year. We waited a long time to get back above the 1%, and, and actually in the in the immediate moment we're back above it, but we did get below it. Well, what took us there and, and what happens post-FOMC?
1: Sure. Uh, Bonnie, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the run from the 10-year up about, 25 basis points on the year when it got up to close to about 1.2% 1, 1. was a lot about the blue wave and um, the you know the hope that there'd be you know a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus and I think the you know the run back toward 1% or maybe dipping right below it is is kind of maybe a recognition that you know the the administration while they may have these these goals and they'll put out these stimulus packages it may not be as easy to implement uh, as originally thought uh, and it certainly might take a little bit longer than
2: originally thought. So, Brian, where do you think? Uh, just we'll focus on the ten-year here. How do you? What's your outlook here for rates? Because you know we had been in that trading range, and we're still in there. Obviously, kind of rates right smack in the middle of some type of trading range here. But what's your outlook?
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, first. I think we talk about outlook, you got to kind of forget, you know, what you what you learned back in school, and you know how the <laughs> how the nominal rates should move relative to growth. Because you know we're in this world where you know, rates are clearly controlled by, by the Fed, you know, and what they yeah. do with their balance sheet. Uh, and so I think you just yeah. got to you gotta take them at their word, you know, which is that, you know, they're going to continue with this policy, you know, they're not going to, you know, lift off the zero bounds, not going to happen until at least 2023, um, you know, a, a reduction in the pace of the growth of the balance sheet, that's not going to happen until next year. Um, so it's hard to see rates going much, you know, significantly higher from where they are now, uh, because, you know, also, in addition, Not only is the economy fragile, but I think, you know, the markets would react negatively to a a 10-year rate significantly higher. So, you know, we hate to put, you know, numbers and bands on rates because, you know, you never know. But, you know, it's kind of hard to see the 10-year, certainly not getting to a, you know, a 2-point something uh, yield this year. And personally, I think we'd be surprised if, you know, it got much above a 1.5.
3: So what do you do because we were just talking yesterday about the record amount of junk issuance. there's also huge you know investment grade issuance. there's there's lots to buy out there but none of it is all that attractive is it
1: No it's a, it's a bond party um you know I think that the Fed has uh Successfully repressed everyone, um, and you know, we're, I mean, just to, you know, for, for your for your your listeners, I mean, you know, we are while we're much lower in interest rates, you know, um, today than we were a year ago. When you look at other things like credit spreads and where high yield bonds are trading, and leverage loans, and and parts of the securitized market, the mortgage backed securities. When you talk about like the the, the spread of how they trade relative to, to treasuries we 're right back where we were last year so you know from just from uh kind of the the narrow world you know the bond world at least on on the credit side, everything non treasury related you know it looks exactly like it did before the pandemic so we 've unwound um you know the entire pandemic period even though you know, we're, we're clearly not out of the pandemic. So the, so the markets, as I've heard somebody, you know, Alan Blinder said, you know, the markets are definitely forward-looking. Um, and I think they're, they're priced not necessarily for even, like, the middle of 2021. Markets, particularly on the credit side, are priced for, you know, the end of 2021, if not 2020, 2022.
2: All right. So, Brian, let's talk about credit quality. How are you uh, viewing it? What are you seeing in your portfolio in terms of credit quality here? We're, you know, almost 12 months into this pandemic and economic disruption.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the theme we, you know, we're running with here is that, you know, let's just let's try to justify today's prices and today's spreads from a credit perspective. Like, uh, clearly, the market is looking toward, like I said, the end of the year. And let's just say in this kind of consensus that by the end of this year, the economy is the same size as it was you know, in, let's say, February of 2020, so before the pandemic. So, so we've, kind of, we've, kind of, we've gone through the dark ravine of the, of the economic contraction, and, and we've got the same size economy. The point we like to emphasize is that while the size of the economy may be the same by the end of the year, it's going to have a different shape. And when an economy has a different shape, and it, it, that may be a good thing long term, but when an economy has a different shape, there's going to be winners and losers. Some are going to kind of fall outside of, 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 of the economy and maybe not relevant anymore. So our thoughts, particularly when, when spreads are tight and there's not a lot of value, as Vonnie indicated, you're going to have have and have nots. And so as an investor, you want to think, you can't just think from a, a high macro perspective, you know, the economy back where it was by the end of the year. No, no, no. You've got to think about what's the economy going to look like? You know, how do we eat how do we entertain ourselves? How, how do we work? Where do we work? How do we travel? All these things. And who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers? And then kind of reconstruct your bond or even your equity portfolio to succeed in that new world. Don't, you know, Again, not don't, not just focusing on, on, on the size or the growth of that new world, but what does it look like?
2: Brian Whelan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Brian Whaling, he's a group managing director for TCW's Fixed Income Group. Uh, They're based out on the West Coast. They have a couple of dollars under management, so we always pay attention to what they're saying on the fixed income
0: side. GameStop,
2: Tootsie Roll, AMC Entertainment. What do these three names all have in common besides trading higher? High short interest. And they are getting uh, moved higher in a significant short squeeze that we haven't seen in some time. Somebody's got to be losing money on the other end of that trade. And it turns out some of the big hedge funds on Wall Street are uh, in that camp. To bring us a story, Kathy Burton, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us here. Kathy, who is Melvin Capital? What is Melvin Capital, and what's their role, and what's happening in some of these names?
6: Uh, so Melvin Capital is a firm run by Gabe Plotkin. He was a very, very successful trader who came out of uh, worked with Steve Cohen uh, for almost a decade. And he has been sort of the center of uh, the whole battle between what we call the Reddit bros and the professionals. <laughs> Uh, for some reason, about a few months ago, they started targeting uh, Gates' portfolio, and they were shorting. Uh, they were going long a lot of the stocks he was shorting, including uh, GameShop.
3: Yeah, I mean, Cathy, why Gabe in particular? You know, he, he he's, he's, a, he's a young guy. He's very successful. There are many people out there that have had a lot more attention in the media and other places that might have drawn the ire of Reddit bros sort of more obviously and yet didn't. They might have drawn the, the ire of other market participants, but not the Reddit bros. What gives with Gabe? I mean, he's very successful and... Uh, He had the backing of, as you say, SAC Capital. He even got people to help shore up the hedge fund most recently when it was under attack.
6: Yes. So uh, no one really knows for sure. But it seems that uh, unlike a lot of hedge funds, uh, Gabe didn't use over-the-counter puts when he was shorting some stocks. And so if you looked in his regulatory filings, you could see that he had puts on certain companies. And so it was in Republic what he was doing. And so that's the only explanation that anyone can really come up with for why he became a target. And also because he's a pretty known to be a pretty aggressive short seller. So um, he had some pretty chunky positions.
2: What's the status of Melvin Capital right now, uh, Kathy?
6: Um, I think that the infusion of capital from um, Steve Cohen's Point 72 and from Ken Griffin's Citadel has helped the firm, uh, has really shorted up. It seems that they've covered uh, – we know they've covered um, Game Shop, and they've rejigged the portfolio uh, a bunch. So uh, it seems like they're they're in an okay position, although we did hear that through yesterday they had their losses had increased
3: beyond the 30
6: percent that we reported.
3: Yeah, I mean, it'll have been a, a pretty difficult couple of quarters for Melvin Capital. Any idea what his other positions are? What his longs might be? Um, no, we don't really have uh, a lot of insight into his portfolio. The last
6: filing we have for, um, is from the third quarter, so that's quite a little while ago. And these guys tend to change around the their portfolios pretty significantly.
2: Kathy, any other hedge funds that have been kind of targeted, or do we know that maybe have had uh, some, you know, poor performance as a result of kind of what we're seeing in some of these names?
6: Uh, no, we're we're hunting around for that right now. Um, we haven't heard um, a lot of names, although we suspect that there'll definitely be people that at the end of the month got uh, got hurt.
3: Any, uh, I mean, I'm just throwing out this and, you know, I don't want to be wild in my theorizing, but is there any, um, anyone out there saying that perhaps there's an army of Redditors that are actually sort of market participants that uh, are regular market participants, but that are sort of stoking the fires and the flames in Reddit itself? Um, No one knows for sure, although it does
6: sort of makes sense that there could be people out there who are, who are doing that. Um, I think it's something that the regulators will definitely be looking into.
2: Mm. So, Kathy, when you talk to the hedge funds, do they feel like this is just a short-term phenomenon in the market, or is this perhaps something larger and it might be a part of markets going forward?
6: Um, I think that, that people are, they don't really know for sure, but they're certainly afraid that it could be. And we are definitely trying to figure out if people are um, changing the way that they short or do different things to, to mitigate this, if it really does become more of a phenomenon going forward.
3: Kathy, I have one more question to ask you, because I noticed this a couple of months ago in December that Plotkin was revealed, as they say, to be the buyer of a $44 million property nice. down in Florida. And it sort of reminded me of the billions plotline about how, you know, the, the guy is advised not to be very ostentatious, and he goes ahead <laughs> with it anyway. Um, is this something that maybe, you know, brought Gabe Plotkin to the attention of, of people who wouldn't have liked that? I, I I mean, it could, but I really don't think so. It, it really seems that,
6: um, because the, the, the first message that was on this Reddit um, forum was maybe three months ago. Mm-hmm. I think that um, even the moderator of the message board says that people don't really know anything. They just kind of follow a momentum. So mm-hmm. someone picked it up and then someone else picked it up because they were all pretty much obsessed with GameShop. Um, it just had a life of its own. So yeah. I don't really think that they were targeting him because he was gay. But I think it was just because they found someone who was actually tracks. short, so yeah. they went after.
3: Kathy, thank you. It's it's a phenomenal story. Kathy always does phenomenal stories on hedge <laughs> funders and hedge funds. She is our hedge fund reporter, and her one today is Reddit traders bludgeon Melvin Capital in warning to mm. Wall Street. And uh, I don't know when the last time I walked into a GameStop was, but I know it's a long time ago. They're still out there though.